One of my arguments in my scholarship on evangelical history is that evangelicalism at its best has always been a renewal movement in the larger church, in the older denominations. And I worry sometimes uh, about the kind of evangelicalism that is cut off from church history because it's removed itself from all the older denominational theological confessional traditions. It's sort of cut itself off at the roots. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. Today our guest is Dr. Doug Sweeney, who is a theological mentor for us here at the CPT, as well as a member of our board, as well as the dean at Beeson Divinity School, as well as a world-renowned scholar and historian uh, on Jonathan Edwards and... uh, (laughs) Uh, Doug has written numerous books on Edwards and evangelical history and all sorts of things. Um, so in a sense, I feel that he needs no introduction, but there it is. Uh, this conversation is is fascinating and far-reaching. Uh, Todd and Doug talk about the history of the CPT, the history of evangelicalism, Jonathan Edwards, as well as uh, Doug's story as uh, an evangelical Lutheran and all sorts of things. So really excited to share this with you all, and we will jump into the conversation right now. Doug Sweeney, welcome to the podcast, brother. Great to be with you, Todd. Delighted to have you. We do not have my partner in crime, Zach Wagner, uh, on the show today. He was unavoidably detained with other other things, but uh, I reassured him that you and I would have plenty to talk about, and we we could fend for ourselves. So, but really excited to have you on on the podcast today. Great to be here with you. Well, delighted, delighted, brother. Um, it, it, this is this is frankly a podcast that is is long overdue because I don't know that our listeners will appreciate this, but you, I'm going to overstate this maybe a little bit, but not much. You are really the one who's responsible for the CPT. <laughs> that was an overstatement. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I, our listeners are going to are going to get a kick out of this. So, you know, uh, obviously, you know, the story, you live the story. Um, but it was through your influence in teaching a class on American church history and um, talking about Jonathan Edwards and Puritan New England and theological education and what pastors are like back in that day um, that kind of captured the imagination or expanded the imagination of my co-founder and our friend Gerald Heastand and um, got him to thinking about what would it look like to recover the model of the pastor theologian in our day. So, uh, and then he and I connected, as you know, and 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 the rest, as they say, is is history. You've been a huge, um, uh, you're a board member and a, a theological mentor for one of our fellowships, and have been a friend and an advocate and a champion and an ambassador for the CPT over all these years. But but. Uh, Give honor to whom honor is due, brother. Um, you were really um, 
the the Big Bang Theory of this CPT. You were there at the start of the whole thing. <laughs> well, one of the delights of my life is to have played a small role uh, in the ministries of Gerald Heaston and Todd Wilson. It was small, but I'm glad to have been an inspiration. I'm glad to be a partner in ministry over all these years. Yeah, yeah. Well, the friendship has been has been super rich, and I remember real fondly the first meeting of the what what used to be called the June Fellowship, um, the fellowship that met in June, which was the second fellowship that you were the theological mentor for. And after at the end of our first meeting, you had some avuncular reflections and gave your theses on the pastor theologian. Um, that I think really helped galvanize what we were doing and, and set the, the, you know, the trajectory for the ministry as it's unfolded. And you've just continued to pour good gasoline on that ever since then. So just a huge thank you to you at the outset um, uh, for, for everything you've meant to, to me personally uh, and to Gerald, I know, but also to the CPT. It's been a blessing in my life. Hope it yeah. continues. Yeah, yeah, praise God. Um, and and um, Ed, Jonathan Edwards, of course, has been, is you know we we credit him in many ways with with this, the the origin of the CPT and his life and ministry as a model in a unique time uh, in American history. Um, but he has been your scholarly how should I put it, passion over many, many years. Um, but before we jump into that, Doug, I thought, and, and hear more about Edwards as a pastor theologian and lessons to be learned there for us and our listeners, um, it would be fun to just put your life and and scholarship and ministry in, um, in context and talk a little bit about where you came from and how you became an Edwards scholar and a church historian and, and now Dean of Beeson Divinity School. So we want to hear uh, uh, some of that story. Where were you born and, and uh, reared, Doug? Born in Fresno, California in 1965. Yeah. Lived for a little while as a boy in the Portland, Oregon area, but grew up mostly in Wheaton, Illinois, and then went all the way to Wheaton College for college. Uh, met my wife, Wilma, at Wheaton Christian High School, as we used to oh, call it. Oh, I did, it's, which is now Wheaton Christian Grammar now, or Wheaton, or Wheaton Academy. They call it, yeah. They were much less sophisticated in our day. It was Wheaton Christian <laughs> High School. Now it's Wheaton right. Academy. That's the same there school. There it is. And that's a school that in the 19th century was on the campus of what is today Wheaton College. So there really used to be ties between the, the oh, Christian High I School and the college. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then uh, went to seminary as a newlywed, went on, did a PhD at Vanderbilt. Um, um, my first job when I was done with grad school was at Yale on the Edwards Project, and that's when yes. I really became a, a day-by-day Jonathan Edwards guy. Yes. And a couple of years into my tenure at Yale, which was a blast. You know, I, I was, was it still, fun? I, yeah, I could be doing that happily today. I would imagine. Just kind of nerding, nerding out in the library and looking at old manuscripts that Edwards, you know, preached from and all the rest of it. Yeah, I'm a dean of a divinity school now, but deep down in my soul, I'm a teacher, a church history guy. Yeah, I love to sort of get my hands dirty in the archives, and that's what I did at Yale all the time. You know, yeah. we were still yeah. publishing the, we call it the letterpress edition, the the books that right. make up the works of Jonathan Edwards at Yale. So we were in the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library transcribing manuscripts all the time. And that must have just been amazing. It was fun. All the visiting scholars would come through, and we'd help them out, and we'd put on conferences, and we had to write so grants. Man. And I taught at Yale Divinity School, and it was really a fun 
variegated postdoctoral opportunity. Marvelous. Martha, did you study history as an undergrad at Wheaton, Doug? And when did your interest in history develop? Yeah, in the middle of college. I entered Wheaton as an economics major headed for law school. Oh, yes. Okay, right, right. And my sophomore year of college, I took a class on the Reformation with Mark Knoll, man who became my college mentor. Yes, He's still a mentor to this day. Yeah. Uh, and it was life-changing. God was doing lots of different things in my life in that period of time. Uh, that class, it just turned on all kinds of light bulbs in my brain and helped me Amazing. make sense of lots of things that I had not had an opportunity to make sense of before. And I very impractically at the end of that year switched majors from economics to history wow. with no idea where I was headed. The only thing I knew was God was using that kind of coursework to deepen my walk with him, to help me mm. theologically, help me understand better my place in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to keep studying those things. So yes. I did. I took all the rest of Mark's classes at Wheaton and then kind of bought some time in seminary. I wasn't sure I was called to be a pastor. And so I went to seminary to try to figure it out and pray and was married to my wife Wilma by then. And, and you did go to Trinity as for seminary? I did. Yeah, that's right. And did yeah. you did the MDiv at Trinity? No, I did an did MA, MA at Trinity. There it is. Yeah. Yep, yeah. An MA that doesn't even exist anymore. But, okay. Uh, it was real good for me. Yeah. Wound up and at Vanderbilt. I, and can let me let me ask you, what was it about I, I had a similar experience at Wheaton where I went in um, thinking I was going to go to law school, Doug, and uh, went in as a double major philosophy because I found that interesting and um, political science with a view to law school, of course, fell in love with the Bible at Wheaton. And I just thought, wow, how can I teach this for a living? This is, this is amazing. It sounds like you had a similar experience with history. What did you find so helpful for your Christian faith about the discipline of history? You know, it was, it was mainly that I had grown up in a good church, a good mm -hmm. Bible teaching church that got a little weird when I was in high school. I don't want <laughs> on the air say bad things about anybody, yes, but yes, uh, that yes. congregation went through a rough patch when I was in high school, and I was sort of a young, sensitive, mm. kind of unusually brainy, awkward adolescent, you know, and it just did a number on me. Mm. Uh, and the, the point I want to make is I, I got to college knowing the Bible pretty well. Uh, both mm -hmm. my grandfathers were pastors. Uh, yes. my, my parents are serious uh, believing Christians. But I hadn't learned much by then about anything in the humanities. I hadn't learned yeah. much about the history of theology, the history of yeah. Christianity. And uh, Wheaton College has always been very good at teaching kids about those things. And uh, I think what Mark Knowles' teaching was doing for me was just filling in a lot of gaps and helping me as a kid um, who'd been in a kind of a, I don't mean this in a, in a derogatory way at all, just trying to be descriptive. Uh, I'd grown up in a good kind of generic evangelical congregation right. that was good at Bible teaching and evangelism and um, some basic discipleship. But I didn't really know about the Christian tradition, nor did mm. I know much about my place within it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I really learned 
uh, to an mm. unprecedented degree at college that uh, I found so fascinating. And this is probably more than you want to know. But at the same time, I'm dating this daughter of Dutch immigrants wow. who had grown up at the Wheaton Christian Reformed Church right across the street from Wheaton College. Oh, wow. And I was smitten by, by my college years. And for reasons that weren't very sophisticated, I wound up worshiping at the Wheaton Christian Reformed Church on Sunday mornings. Yes. And I'd sit by Wilma and her mom would invite me over for dinner after church. And it was a wonderful time. And that was my first experience in a more sort of old Protestant, little bit more liturgical, reformational right. kind of a church. And God used that to help me out as well at the same and did time. That, did that resonate with you as a student of church history and getting a little broader exposure to, oh, wow. Protestants in the evangelical tradition, I mean, we worship differently a century ago or two centuries ago or what? I mean, did that help? Yeah, it did help. And these are the days some of the older listeners will recall uh, when Robert Weber was a big deal at Wheaton College oh, and all yeah, the evangelicals sure. were on the Canterbury Trail at Wheaton. <laughs> right, right. I was never on the Canterbury Trail, but I was on a similar trail. Yes. You know, I was sort of sinking deeper roots than ever before yeah. in church history. And being enriched and nourished by what was coming up through those. Were you groups. on the Augsburg Trail, Doug? What was the trail you were on? Yeah. How would you describe it? And and we do. I'm I'm, I'm gesturing a little bit. We I would love to talk, and maybe this is the the, the time about your um, finding your way into the Lutheran tradition and being a a deeply committed Lutheran um, theologically and ecclesially and 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 it, did that happen? Th- Shortly thereafter, talk to us about your ecclesial theological journey. Yeah, it began at that time. Um, I'm not the kind of Lutheran, and there are some, um, yes. who think Lutherans are right about everything and everybody else <laughs> is wrong about everything. They're sort of, ironically, some of the theologians of the cross get pretty triumphalistic about their own Lutheranism sometimes. <laughs> right. And that's, that's a little distasteful to me. A little uh, ironic, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I do like the what some people will understand, um, you know, when I call it a, a, the evangelical Catholic sensibility that you find among Lutherans and other kinds of traditional yeah. evangelical Protestants. I was being drawn in that direction during college. In fact, Mark Knoll's Reformation class, I'm not kidding, a third of it was on Martin Luther. Wow. I'm not sure he'd do that, you know, again, that way now. But God used that in my life. So I, I, the, and the more I learned about the Reformation and the small C Catholic tradition and the history yes. of theology in general, the more I kind of leaned Lutheran. But even when we went to seminary, uh, I had a buddy in seminary who was the youth pastor at uh, a big Presbyterian church in Deerfield. Uh, whose senior pastor was not quite as faithful as he probably should have been. And so my friend, you know, was on this mission to make sure the high school kids in his church really understood the faith well and the Bible and were excited about following Jesus and living out their faith. And so he persuaded Wilma and me to come help him with the youth group. And we did that through seminary. So I was a Presbyterian. I mean, not so much by conviction, just helping out in ministry during seminary. We didn't join a Lutheran church until 1989 when we moved to Nashville, Tennessee to start at Vanderbilt. Oh, okay. Yeah, but all that was going on in those years of my life. Yeah. And what did you find um, intriguing, appealing, maybe a better word, compelling about, about Lutheranism, Doug, that drew you? 
and has held you all these years? A lot of things. Uh, if I had to pick just one, uh, I've actually written about this. Um, mm. So I'm, I'm kind of summarizing what I've written about in a book called Why We Belong that was published almost a decade ago now, uh, whose contributors were evangelicals who are parts of old denominations whose assignment in that book was to talk about how they combine happy participation in the global evangelical movement on the one hand with commitment to their own denominational confessional traditions on the other hand. And in that article, I said what I want to say now, uh, probably the single most important attraction um, for me to Lutheranism was Luther's consistent emphasis on the real objective presence of God in Christ by his spirit in the scriptures, in the sacraments. You know, I was one of the the evangelical teenagers who raised my hands, raised my hand in evangelistic settings probably a dozen times, never quite sure I'd felt it strong enough or I thought all the right thoughts about it, you know. Did I do that right, rightly enough? Did I do it rightly enough? Sincerely. I had a, I had a, what I'd call today a a hyper-subjective understanding of what it meant to have genuine Christian faith. And Luther was a helper to me for reasons you can imagine. Uh, When I was in college and seminary and a a, a young man. Now, I'll be quick to point out, you know, I've been Lutheran now for, I don't know, 30-some years Mm. and ministered in lots of Lutheran churches. And there is a a danger in the world of Lutheranism of being hyper-objective in our understanding of the Christian faith, where if you've been baptized and fairly regular in attendance at a Lutheran church, you're sort of good to go and you can even get a little antinomian from time to time and not worry too much about it. And I think that's a danger as well. You know, now mm. I, I say to our students at Beeson, when I'm with Lutherans, I'm trying to get them to appropriate the faith in a more um, serious, devotional, personal kind of way. Mm. And when I'm with the kind of young people I used to be, I'm trying to feed them more of the objective dimension of the Christian faith, help yeah. them to quit navel-gazing quite so much, thinking about themselves quite so much, and trust in the real, objective, reliable promises of God to them and yes. the presence of God in Christ by the Spirit yeah. in their lives. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. And it, it, are you in the more conservative end of, of the Lutheran tradition, kind of Missouri Synod space or more ELCA space? Well— it's a long or story between the, or yeah. The short answer is I'm somewhere in between mm-hmm. uh, for most of from 1989 until about 2010, we were in the ELCA. That's the mm-hmm. big mainline denomination. Yeah. And that denomination has become um, more intentionally and consistently liberal over the years. Yeah. And, uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, hundreds of thousands of members of that denomination left and formed two new Lutheran denominations. One's called the North American Lutheran Church. The other's called the Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ. And I was in a church that left the ELCA for the LCMC. There it is, yeah. And practically speaking, they're theologically conservative, but not, not conservative in every single way. You know, yeah. all the way down, straight ticket. Uh, mm-hmm. And 
because they left the ELCA, they allow for ordained uh, ministry of, of women. Yes. And in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, those would be the more conservative, stricter denominations. Uh, women's ordination is not allowed. Got it. Oh, that makes a ton of sense. That's 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 makes sense. I, yeah, I was going to ask your thoughts on evangelicals, and I, no doubt there are some listening who um, find themselves uh, in mainline Protestant denominational spaces and and are navigating that. Um, and I know for some evangelicals that they're tra- that's a bit of a head scratcher. Like, how does one pull that off? Uh, for those within. Um, they, you know, they, they've learned to navigate that and, and, and can have deep ties and commitments as you were talking about a little earlier. What are your, what are your, your thoughts or reflections on that, Doug, of evangelicals sojourning as it were in a main, more, more liberal mainline Protestant denomination? Yeah, well, that was me for a long time. Uh, yeah. and I'm very sympathetic with people who are, uh, in settings like that, uh, getting church historical front just a second. Yes. Uh, one of my arguments in my scholarship on evangelical history is that evangelicalism at its best has always been a renewal movement in the larger church, in the uh. older denominations. And I worry sometimes uh, about the kind of evangelicalism that is cut off from mm. church history because it's removed itself from all the older denominational theological confessional traditions. It sort of cut itself off at the roots. Yeah, yeah. And lots of pastors in those congregations struggle with, so what are the resources we're supposed to use here <laughs> right. to teach people the Bible and the Christian faith? Are we just sort of making this up again for ourselves, or are we connected? And then how are we connected to the history of Christianity, the church Catholic, you know, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And evangelicals in the, the, the old line Protestant denominations don't have to deal with all those same questions because they mm. have resources in the, in the history of those denominations. Mm-hmm. The problem in a lot of those denominations is the evangelical members are the only ones who care deeply <laughs> about right. all those older resources and history and the confessions right. and so on. Um, yeah, so all that is to say I'm very sympathetic with them. I could be a happy member of the ELCA today, but um, yeah, I mean, frankly, uh, I have a traditional view of uh, marriage and sexuality, and it's just, it's hard to be in the ELCA today if you're somebody like me. Yeah, There's so much pressure to let people yeah. do whatever they want in terms of their sexuality and their gender identity. That, yeah. um, it'd just be a, it'd be a chronic set of tensions and disagreements that might yeah. might do more harm than good. I was going to say, you wouldn't necessarily say an evangelical was was doing something wrong by continuing to associate or affiliate with an ELCA no. congregation in that, in that, you know, in no, that in vein. Fact, uh, my but, own, but you're my just going to have to live with some tensions. Yeah, that's right. I was going to say my own son and daughter-in-law are in a PCUSA church out in Western Washington. Yeah. Both of the pastors of that church are evangelical. They're both theologically orthodox, real committed to biblical discipleship. It's a great congregation for our kids. Mm, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm not upset with them for joining for joining right. that church. It's just, you know, you, you do your best where you are, and try to be faithful and try to keep all the right things in in balance. 
And you're and Doug, you are you're a you're a gracious, understated soul. So you're not a heavy-handed proselytizing type of person. But would there kind of put you on the spot a little bit? Is there anything to be said to sort of proselytizing evangelicals, kind of free church, low church evangelicals to think seriously about? Um, worshiping in some of the old classic mainline traditions in good evangelical fashion as a renewal movement within those traditions. Is there anything to that? I mean, would you commend that to people or would you just be understanding if they found themselves in, you, do you see what I'm saying? What I'm, what I'm yeah, getting at? Uh, I would commend it for sure. Um, again, we're in a time now, the last 15 years or so have been a period of time where it's just, there's a lot more torque. There's mm. a lot more tension. Uh, there's a lot more difficulty for evangelicals in some of the older yeah. Protestant denominations because there, there's so many, um, so many ways that have to do mostly with the living out of your faith, gender, sexuality, mm-hmm. the way you understand marriage, and so on. That it's just it's hard to be a traditional Christian in, in yeah. some of those denominations anymore. At least if you're called upon from time to time to preach or teach or you mm-hmm. know be in, be in leadership, it's not impossible. It's just harder than it used to be. So I'd want to say there are lots of great reasons. You know, we we profess uh, we evangelicals. I'm not assuming all our listeners like the word evangelical. I know it's a hot word these days, right. but I'm right. a church history guy. What I mean by it is this renewal movement that God has used uh, to bring a lot of people to faith and build them up in love and so on. Uh, And I like that history, and I'm happy to identify with that personally. A lot of us profess that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I'd like to see us live out that profession more consistently Mm. and quit cutting ourselves off at the roots and find ways, Mm. even if you're in a free church that's free on purpose, um, find ways to root your people in the best of the traditions of Christianity, the best of the traditions of biblical exegesis and devotional life and Christian witness and practice, and keep them from feeling from generation to generation as though the health of the church depends on them uh, or as though it's their job to make up their own theology, you know, and anew uh, rather than find right. their theology as people who are faithful members of the, the Church of Jesus Christ around the world, past and present, at home and abroad, you know, for ecclesiological reasons. Right. I would want right. to commend a more small-c Catholic sense of identity and set of practices for non-denom and free church evangelicals. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to tune in next time for the rest of our conversation with CPT theological mentor and dean of Beeson Divinity School, Dr. Doug Sweeney. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.